Amen. That was such a joy to worship with all of you this morning. I just want to say thank you for having me. Most of, many of you, I think, probably will remember me, although there are some new faces here, and so if you're here and I'm meeting you for the first time, uh, just allow me to introduce myself. As Pastor Samuel said, I am uh, I'm Josh Claycamp, and I'm from Kamloops, British Columbia. And uh, you, many of you may probably not remember this, but about almost 28 years ago, when I was seven years old, I was baptized in that tank right there in the, as a result of the ministry of this church and the gospel that was preached and held so dear among the people who make up this church. And so now I have gone on to uh, Kamloops, British Columbia, and we are working to plant a church there. And uh, I'm just here this morning to share with you what the Lord is doing there in Kamloops. Of course, many of you pray for, most everybody, I know you all pray for me in this room, and I get your emails and your, and your cards, and we're so grateful and also appreciative of the financial support that many of you in this room also support us with. And so we're just here this morning to say thank you. Thank you so much for your partnership in the gospel. Thank you so much for helping us to lift high the truth of Christ and, and what he has done for us on the cross there in Kamloops, British Columbia. I, uh, you know, I send home those newsletters, and of course every, every year you get an update, and you know, there's, we did so many, so many this in VBS this year, so many this attended Sunday school, so many baptisms, and you hear the numbers, but what we sometimes forget is that behind every single number, it's not just a number, behind every single number there's a face, and there's a person, and there's a life that's been changed or impacted in some way, and so rather than just coming here uh, this morning and sharing with you about what God is doing numerically or any other kind of statistical report that I might give, I thought it would be really wonderful if I'd bring along a member from our church uh, someone who's been impacted by the faithful preaching of, of the Word of God. And uh, so I just want to introduce her to you this morning. She is a Canadian, born and raised. Her name is Lydia McAndrew, and she's going to come and share with you about what the Lord has been doing in her life and in the life of Bridge Baptist Church. Good morning. So my name's Lydia. I am from Canada, born and raised in British Columbia. Um, and uh, I love it here in Texas, just so y'all know. Um, I, we've been here for a week and a half or so, and uh, love the barbecue. We went to the state fair, and I had a corn dog. That was pretty awesome. And uh, I just actually recently picked up in the last couple days that it's not just y'all. You can also say y'alls. So this is y'alls church. In, uh, in Canada, we would say you guys, and so I would say your guys' church. But you alls's church, y'alls. I like it, so it's good. Um, so I'm just a, a here to share a little bit about what it's like growing up in Canada. And I didn't come from a Christian home, and what it was what it was like for me to become a Christian and that whole process. So I'm from a totally unChristian family, and uh, I grew up for the first couple of years of my first several years of my life, um, thinking that Christmas was just a Santa Claus holiday, Easter, all that. I didn't know anything about Jesus. And then when I was going into grade five, the fifth grade, you guys would say here, <laughs> um, uh, we, my family moved from the coast of British Columbia to the interior of British Columbia. And uh, I had a friend in school, and she was a Christian. And, uh, <laughs> and um, so she, we, we would go to her house, and, and uh, her whole family wasn't Christian, just her mom was Christian, and she was a Christian, and, but her dad was okay with us going to church, and so I'd sleep over at her house on Saturday nights, and we'd go to church on Sunday. And uh, I didn't really know, understand much at the time. I just really liked the music and the fellowship and, you know, felt welcoming, and I liked it, so we went, and my parents were okay with it because they're both quite liberal and open-minded. Um, I grew up calling them by their first names, not mom and dad. And uh, my mom is into pretty much every new age uh, hippie meditation thing that you can think of. So she's very liberal. And my dad is, has actually smoked marijuana for the first, well, for his whole life pretty much since he was about 14 years old. So I grew up with that. Um, just a couple funny, funny stories <laughs> about that. Um, when we were little, I have two sisters. I don't have any brothers. I have two sisters. I'm in the middle. And uh, when we were little and we would get sick, my dad and mom would make these medicinal cookies <laughs> for us to feel better. And uh, I only found out years later that, you know, what the medicinal ingredient in those was. Um, another funny story is, so after when we moved to the interior, um, 
my dad sort of sat us down. We were older at that point, and he sort of sat us down and um, said, you know, this is, I smoke this stuff. And we always thought it was just sort of cigarettes, um, but he kind of explained it. Don't talk about it with your friends kind of thing. And we're like, okay. And uh, so we kind of learned that it was illegal at that point. And uh, my mom ended up house sitting, or sorry, plant sitting, like babysitting this plant for a friend of hers. And it was a marijuana plant. And uh, she put it right in her dining room. And uh, I was terrified to invite friends over for dinner because I thought they're going to see this and like, I don't know, call the cops or something. I don't know, something's going to happen. They're going to think this is weird that my mom has this plant in our dining room. And then she makes this joke about how we should keep it around and decorate it for our Christmas tree. So that's, that was my childhood <laughs> growing up. Um, so anyways, my parents split up when I was about 11 years old. And uh, my sisters and I would spend one awkward night a week eating dinner at my dad's place. Um, but then things sort of leveled out after that. I had a fairly normal high school experience. Um, I wasn't part of the popular group. I didn't get into the drinking scene, um, but I also wasn't unpopular. I was kind of unnoticed in the middle group. Um, and I had grown apart from my Christian friend. Um, she had moved away for a year, and then she moved back. And we sort of reconnected in grade 11 and 12. And I started going to youth group in grade 12. And the Lord started to, I guess, just pull on my heart I had more questions about Christianity, and I really was searching out, you know, who Jesus was. I feel like my parents kind of raised me to believe in God, you know, creator or whatever, um, but I didn't know what Jesus was all about. So I started asking more questions, and I, going to youth group, I made some more Christian friends, and I'd ask them about it, and this one time I was asking my friend about it, and, uh, you know, he just said, I, I'm trying to explain it, you know, trying to help you get it. But we're going to see this movie tonight. Do you want to come? Uh, it's called The Passion, and it was the Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ movie. That was in 2004 when it first came out, just before Easter. And uh, I said, yeah, I, w I would like to see that. It was, uh, um, I had seen the previews for it, and it looked interesting, and maybe it could answer some of my questions. And I'll never forget it. It was a Toonie Tuesday. Toonie is like a $2 coin that you have in Canada. And that's back when movies were that cheap. Wow. <laughs> and it was a Tuesday night, and we went to the movie. And I got saved there in the theater. I just, I don't know what it was. I didn't really understand all of what was going on. I didn't understand who Pilate was or what the whole structure of everything was. But I knew that I was the one who had done that to Jesus, that I had spat in his face and that I had, my sins had put him there. And I remember we came out of the theater and everyone was really quiet. Nobody was talking. And uh, we went, I got dropped off at home, and I remember going straight through my living room, through my kitchen, and upstairs to my bedroom, and I just bawled my face off and just cried out to the Lord and said I was so sorry for all my sins and asked him to, asked him to save me. And so, awesome. I was a Christian now. That was great. I, I remember I went up to my friend and I said, I'm, I'm a Christian now. I, th I think that's what happened. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. I'm a Christian now. I finally get it, you know. Um, and uh, the church that I was going to youth, the youth group with, um, that it was a Mennonite Brethren church, and they had just started a baptism class, and so I found out I was supposed to get baptized, and I wanted to get baptized. And so in August of that year, in 2004, I got baptized. So that was just before, because this was all in my graduating year of high school, that was just before I was going off to university. So unfortunately, there wasn't a whole lot of time for discipleship after I became a Christian. The truth is, though, that even if there were more time, I don't know how much I would have been discipled. Um, it's sort of one of the shortcomings of the churches in Canada. Um, maybe it's just because we're so polite, um, but there really isn't any solid teaching on doctrinal distinctives. You might have heard that Canada is supposedly one of the most polite countries. We're always apologizing and everything. Um, so pastors don't really want to be critical of other teachings or other positions on the scriptures because that would be seen as rude. And why is it any of their business? It's sort of a live and let live mentality. So there it was. With no understanding of denominations, theological framework, even my clarity on what exactly the gospel was, and no warning against heretical teaching. Nothing, none of that. So I started classes in September, and I was living in dorms on the campus, on the university campus there in Kamloops. 
and uh, there was a poster up for a church that had just started up that year, and they were meeting on campus. And so I thought, woohoo! I don't have to go on the buses because if I go on the buses, you know, I come from a small town. Small is about 6,000 people population. And so moving to Kamloops, it's quite a bit bigger than that. And I thought, if I get on the buses, I'm going to get lost and I'm going to get in a shady part of town and get mugged or something. I was totally freaked out. And uh, so it was just a baby in the Lord. And I thought, awesome, this church is meeting on campus and I'll probably meet even Christians who are students here um, on the campus. So that would be awesome, right? Well, this church was very charismatic and non-denominational, um, but I didn't even really know what that, what that meant, what that was, and uh, they seemed fine to me. They are really passionate. The worship was really passionate. They seemed to follow the Bible or preach from the Bible, and uh, they just welcomed me right in and loved on me, and so I just was like, yes, this is what I want to do. But over time things went quite sour. Um, I was just so entrenched in it that I couldn't see it. Um, I believed that the Bible was true, and I knew that it was the inspired word of God, Um, but the scriptures were so taken out of context and so twisted. um, The leadership was so manipulative with the scriptures that we always just assumed that if we didn't get it, if we didn't understand what they were saying, that it was our fault, it was our mistake. Um, that we didn't that we didn't get, and we just need to think about it harder. It was not about us individually coming to understand the scriptures, um, but it was about the pastor and his wife, um, who we were also taught to consider a pastor. Um, it was about them always being right about what they were saying. For example, I distinctly remember our pastor using this passage from Acts chapter one, verse five, um, and it says uh, that. Um, Jesus tells his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit um, to come, and he says it will, he will come not many days from now. That's the quote from Jesus from Acts chapter, chapter 1. And this was used to inspire prayer in the people in that church. So our pastor took that scripture and said, this is, this is what it means. Jesus is actually intentionally being unclear about how long it's going to take for the Holy Spirit to come to the disciples in order to test them and uh, see if they're, going to, if they're going to really endure in that upper room, in that prayer room, if they're really going to be able to you know, sustain their prayer time. And it was actually, in reality, several weeks, maybe even months before the Holy Spirit was sent. So Jesus says that he's going to come in a, in a few days from now, but really he, he was unclear on purpose So in order to test the disciples. And this was just to inspire us to, to pray for longer periods of time. I just want to point something out, that the teaching behind that isn't really bad, if you think about it, um, prayer and having sustained fervent prayer even is a good thing, but it was the means that he was using. He took the scriptures and used them to, for his own agenda, for what he wanted to teach, not letting the scriptures actually say what they were saying. Um, so the whole idea, that the foundation in that church was not I am, as a pastor, going to point you to the scriptures and you're going to learn the truth um, on your own, what, the, what God is speaking to you through the scriptures, but you need to trust me for what the scriptures are saying. You need to come to me. It, and so it's a fa- it was a false gospel in that sense. And I remember going to him after the fact, in private, just trying to be respectful, you know, and uh, I remember pulling him aside and saying, you know, I read this scripture, I read this verse, and there's a footnote in my Bible And it says that Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. So the Passover happens, Jesus is crucified, then he raises from the dead. And then it says in the other verse that Jesus appeared to his disciples for 40 days before ascending into heaven. So I'm kind of doing the math here, and doesn't that mean that maybe it was like max a week? before the Holy Spirit was sent, because he says, you know, a few days from now, and that was after 40 days of appearing to his disciples, 50 days Pentecost happens after Passover, you know, it's not adding up in my mind. And to this day, I do not know what he said to me to appease my question, 
But whatever it was, it was, you are wrong, I am right, and you shouldn't be asking me about this. You know, you, sh you should just trust what I have to say. And I don't, I, I honestly can't say what happened, um, but I didn't want to be seen as rebellious because that would, we were taught to respect our pastor with unquestioning obedience. And so I just let it go. No one in that church wanted to be seen as, wanted to be seen as rebellious. Um, and our pastors were seen as having the ultimate authority over how the church should be run. And they were the source for where God was leading us next. Proverbs 29:18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. And our pastor just loved to quote that to us. Um, he taught it to mean that we needed them, our pastor um, and his wife, to provide the vision. Otherwise, we would waste away, basically. We would perish without that vision coming from him. So much so that no one entered into a dating relationship without their blessing and consent. Those of us who lived at his house were charged an exorbitant amount of rent um, without ever questioning, you know, okay, if his mortgage is this much and he's charging us this much for this many people, you know, where's that extra money going? Is he profiting off of this? Um, every waking hour was used to serve in the ministries that they deemed fit. We were asked to tithe off of our student loan money um, and expected to volunteer for work projects the proceeds of which, you know, which uh, people would donate money um, for these work projects, the proceeds of which would supposedly go back into our church bank account to fund future ministries. And don't even get me started on what happened to all of that money. The end result of all of this static was that the Lord's voice became less distinct. It came, became more muted and more drowned out. But he still had a plan. After eight years of uninterrupted control over the church, our pastor decided to go on a sabbatical. He was having family problems, decided to go on a sabbatical and leave the preaching and the various Bible study teaching um, uh, responsibilities up to a few leadership members in the church. What this resulted in was basically an awakening. Um, the leadership began to look at the scriptures in wanting to teach these Bible studies and you know, preach on a Sunday morning and they began to realize that the way that we were doing church this whole time was totally unbiblical. Um, and the authority that we were giving our pastor even was very wrong. Um, our pastor, of course, caught wind of this and jumped straight off of his sabbatical and back into preaching in a desperate attempt to regain authority over the church. Um, but it was too late. The rest of us had allowed the truth of what the scripture was saying to pierce our hearts. And uh, within about two or three weeks after that, the church had collapsed, it had totally fallen apart. So now what? I was really torn up at that time um, in admitting to myself that the pastors, these people that I had loved and trusted for eight years, my whole Christian life pretty much, that they were frauds. I was really broken after that, um, but I knew that God still wanted me to go to church. Um, I was really scared to trust a pastor um, after that experience, but I knew that I could trust the Bible. I knew that I could trust the Bible. Um, we, so uh, the members of that church dispersed, and we all sort of came up with our own list of what we were looking for. Um, and uh, I had my sort of my priorities, and I thought, you know, okay, I want... Uh, you know, worship, yeah, that's important. Like, I like this style of worship or whatever. Um, I want the church to be welcoming, you know, family-oriented. Uh, I, I, I want them to be, you know, warm. And um, those things were important, but not as important as does this church preach the Bible? Do they follow the Bible? Do they hold the Word of God as the ultimate authority over everything that they do? And about three weeks into my hunt for a new church family, I donned the doors of Bridge Baptist Church in Kamloops. I cannot describe to you how I felt um, after hearing my first exegetical expository message. This is, this is how I'd like to describe it. It was like I had craved steak my whole life, not even ever tasting it, not even knowing what it tasted like, and someone had just given me my first bite, and I just knew that that is what I wanted, that's what I needed. 
and it was all over. Um, I did try visiting other churches in Camels, but the truth was that that was it. I was totally sold. Um, I knew that that was what I was looking for, and truth be told, no other church in Kamloops has that, and I looked, but that was it. That was the only church that has that. I'll end by just saying that Canada is starved for churches that preach the true, unadulterated Word of God. I feel, even after a very rough start as a Christian, um, so blessed to have finally found a church where everything falls perfectly into place under the, the Word of God, the authority of Scripture. And I just want to end by saying thank you so much for any way that you have contributed to the ministry in Canada. I'm so thankful. Um, I can't express how grateful I am. In the end, the Bible was what really saved me, but you guys helped make that happen. So I just want to say thank you. And I get to follow that wonderful testimony. Bear with me. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 15 and following. I actually do get invited uh, to, uh, to go to missions conferences on a regular basis and, and speak about missions and church planting and, and what's that, what that's like. And oftentimes, when I go to these conferences, you know, the, these, at these conferences, they'll have individuals who are engaged in church planting and, and missions from all over the world. And routinely, I will encounter there somebody who's from Africa or, or somebody who's from Australia. And we're all getting ready to stand up and, and make our presentations. And I've got this, uh, this flag of Canada kind of pinned to my lapel. And, and the guy from Africa, he's got like this brightly colored tunic with these feathers and this wonderful looking, you know, staff with cool looking stuff on it and beads and all this kind of stuff. And, and it always happens that when I stand up to preach, people are like, oh, that's very, very interesting. And, and you make your presentation, but they just keep looking over at the fellow with the, the wonderful beads and, and the feathers. And I'm like, man, I can't compete with that. I can't compete with the feathers. I don't know if you've ever wondered, uh, when we come to speak, when, when missionaries come to speak at churches, oftentimes we always come with a story or something interesting about what's going on in the country where we are from. And uh, I've always wondered what it would be like if I were happen to be a member of a church in, in the original the original churches that were planted in the New Testament. You know, you have your elder or your pastor, and of course he's very good. He stands up and he preaches the word to you faithfully every Sunday. But what would it be like to have, say, the Apostle Paul come to town for a visit one Sunday? Or what would it be like to have the Apostle Peter come to town and visit on a Sunday? You know, from Canada, it's very cold up there, and I could tell you a wonderful story about doing a VBS on a frozen lake where it is so cold, your toes are numb, you can't even talk, you can hardly, hardly share the gospel because your teeth are chattering. I could talk to you about standing on frozen water, but imagine if Peter were here today and he could share a testimony with you of ministering in Galilee and walking on that water that was not frozen. Can you imagine what that would be like to have a testimony from somebody like Peter who was there with Jesus. As far as I'm concerned, if Peter were to be in our gathering today, I would sit down, I would be quiet, I would be silent, I would say, yes, Peter, come, speak to us, share with us what it was like to walk with Jesus. Tell us any kind of trivial, you know, irrelevant story of just what camp life was like hanging out with Christ. Just come and share. We don't even care what you say, just any story that you want to share. That would be wonderful. And do you know what Peter would say if he were here? He would stand up here this morning, and he would say to you, as wonderful as those testimonies might be, as wonderful as those interesting stories I might share would be, we have something even better. We have something even more wonderful and more powerful. We have the Word of God. If Peter were here this morning, rather than sharing with you something from his life, he would say, let's open up the Bible. I know that from 2 Peter chapter 1. He makes a statement, and I want you to look with me in verse 16. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses 
of his majesty. Now there in that first verse, he says, listen, I want you to know that what we're sharing with you, what we're telling you, this isn't something that's a myth. It's not a fable. It's not a good story we heard around a campfire one night. I was there. I saw it. I am an eyewitness. I was a participant in these events. I saw what happened. And he goes on to say in verse 17, for when we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is referencing an event that is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 17 as well as Mark 9. Don't flip there, just listen. Peter, James, and John accompany Jesus up onto a mountain outside of the Uh, just outside of Galilee there. They follow him up here on this mountain, and Jesus is transfigured before their very eyes. They are beholding him in his earthly form, purely in his humanity. But as they travel up onto this mountain, Jesus is talking with them, and as he is there with them, they are praying. Jesus is transfigured. His glory shines through his humanity. And for the briefest of moments, they got the chance with their own eyes to see the divine to see the unadulterated, pure Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He was there with them. They saw it. And more than this, they saw two other Old Testament heroes, Moses and Elijah, there on the mountain with Jesus, talking and talking about the fact that Jesus was about to be crucified. And Peter, he beholds this whole thing, and he is so amazed. It is so wonderful. Him, James, and John sitting there observing this with their own eyes, He makes a statement, Lord, this is a great experience that we're having. This is an awesome, awesome thing. I want to build three tents or or three dwellings here for you and, and Moses and Elijah. He is so overcome and so overawed by what he is observing. And the Father shows up. Scripture describes it as a a sort of a cloud that overshadows them, a cloud filled with glory. And this voice booms forth from the cloud. It says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It was so amazing. It was so thrilling. They were experiencing the presence of God and the only possible human reaction that sinful men could have in this type of an experience was to fall on their faces in fear. And when they looked up, Everything was gone. Jesus had returned to normal. And he said, okay, let's go. You know, we all hunger for that type of an experience. I think all of us would really like to hear Peter stand up here and tell us stories. Or we would all like to be with Peter on the mountaintop, seeing Jesus transfigured with our own eyes. We'd like that experience. We'd like to have that encounter. And yet, if you recall, of the 12 apostles, only three were invited onto the mountain. Peter, James, and John. And of those three, the lesson that they walked away from that experience with was this. Listen to Jesus. The glory returned back to normal humanity And they were left there with the Son, having observed his glory, but having heard the message. Listen to him. Peter is saying, hey, guys, I was there. I saw it. I experienced it. I heard it with my own ears. And he goes on in verse 19. We have something more, the ESV translates it, more sure or more certain. Now, what is more sure or more certain, more absolute than an eyewitness experience? What is something that is more reliable than what you have seen with your own two eyes? Peter tells us we have something more sure, more certain, more dependable, more reliable, and it is the prophetic word of God. He's referencing the Bible. He's talking about this book in our hands is better than any missionary testimony. 
is better than any eyewitness account, as wonderful as it would be, and please don't misunderstand me, I would love to talk to Peter. In fact, I have a couple of questions that I want to ask Peter someday when I see him. But he is saying, for now, in this time, better than a missionary's report, better, better than any kind of story from the mission field, this is better. This is more reliable. This is more dependable. This is what the Lord wants us to have. You say, okay, so it's a book of stories of things that have happened. It's a book of teachings, things that we need to listen to. I'm telling you, if you think of it as just a collection, it, those, are, those are true statements. It is a collection of stories, a collection of teachings, but it is more than that. And, and if your view of the Bible is simply that it's a collection of stories and teachings and good things that we should strive to live by, you have a lower view of Scripture than what the apostles originally had of it. I want you to just stick your thumb here in 2 Peter, and I want you to flip back with me. Go back a couple of books to Galatians chapter 3. Paul has done what I am doing. Obviously, he did it much better than I could ever hope to do it. He planted a bunch of churches in the southern region of Galatia, what is Galatia, what, uh, and he's writing a, a letter to them. They're, they're experiencing some difficulties. There's heresy that is creeping into the churches in Galatia there. They're flirting with this idea of circumcision, namely that, uh, you know, the gospel is good. Jesus Christ dying on the cross is good. Faith is wonderful. But we also need to do certain things to earn favor with the Lord. Namely, we need to, you know, be circumcised and strive to honor every detail of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant law, the rules and the regulations. And, and so Paul is combating that notion saying, no, no, you don't have to be circumcised. And he's going to address this promise that God the Father made to Abraham. And as he addresses this, he's going to make a very profound statement about Scripture and how we are to regard Scripture. I want you to look with me, Galatians 3, look at this, verse 7. He's making this argument in the favor of faith and against legalistic works. And he makes this statement in verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Abraham was the person to whom God gave the original covenant and the promises. And look at what he says here in verse 8. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then it is those who are of faith who are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now that's the statement. In verse 8, he makes this amazing statement, the scripture foreseeing the future, what God was going to do in the future, the Scripture made a promise to Abraham. He's referencing the encounter that Abraham has with God in Genesis chapter 12. And don't flip there, but just listen. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12 and you read the account, you will notice that there isn't some talking book that's flying around speaking to Abraham. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The word that is used there in that particular passage Elohim, the Hebrew word for God. God is the one speaking to Abraham. Paul, writing an argument here to the churches of Galatia, says the Scripture said something to Abraham, which means that as far as Paul is concerned, what Scripture says is what God says. What the book says is what God says. Now, you'll hear all sorts of arguments. You know, this book, it's not like God. You can't just sort of tap it on somebody and they'll be miraculously healed. This book, it, it can't part the, the waters. It can't part the oceans. That's uh, a little bit besides the point, though, if you stop to think about it. Paul's argument in the book of Galatians is that what God says is exactly what the Scriptures are speaking to us. What the Scriptures are saying is exactly what God is saying. How many of you, just by show of hands, how many of you are on Facebook? It's okay. I'm on Facebook. I will be the first to confess. I'm on Facebook. How many of you use Twitter? Anybody here use Twitter? I use Twitter. Okay. It's okay. How many of you have ever... Facebooked something or tweeted something that seemed rather innocuous in your own imagination, but as soon as you sent it out there into the permanent digital world, you read it a second time and you thought, ooh, 
that could be misinterpreted. That's not what I really want to say, and you wish you could take it back, but you've already gotten like four or five negative comments, and you're like, oh, it's already too late. It's already out there. I'm sure if you've ever Facebooked or tweeted, you've had that experience. The digital medium is recording your words. Your words are an extension of your person, but it is being recorded in a, in a venue that is able to be seen and heard by everyone. In a sense, you could say that the original tweeter or the original Facebook poster was the father. I don't post on Facebook anymore. I don't really tweet that much stuff on Twitter anymore because I never can understand how my words are going to be interpreted or understood by people reading that stuff. So I just keep it very basic, very plain. Like we have this event at church. We have this thing happening. I just use it to announce certain things that are going on. But the Lord of the universe spoke. And he wasn't afraid to make it permanent and lasting in the form of a book for all of us to read and to understand. Now, don't jump to the conclusion that this is little more than a Facebook post or a Twitter status update. It's way more than that. You see, as a fallen sinful man, when I speak to you, I have been known at times as a sinful man to lie. Sometimes my words are outright deceptive. There are other times in which I'm not intentionally trying to be deceptive, but I'm just wrong. Anybody ever watch the weather in the evening? I don't think those well-intentioned meteorologists are deliberately trying to mislead us about what the weather is going to be like today. They're giving it their best effort. They're giving it their best guess. But at the end of the day, their words are flawed because their understanding is flawed. They can't predict with absolute certainty what the weather is going to be like. So I can either intentionally mislead you, or I can accidentally mislead you, or I could be right and I could tell you the truth. All of those things are possibilities. But with regards to God, in the same way that when I speak, my words become an extension of my person. As we understand the person of God, his words as he speaks, when they are recorded for us in this book, they become an extension of his person. Of course, the book, you can't just tap it on someone three times and expect them to be miraculously healed. But the Father who speaks through the scriptures, he absolutely can heal. The Father who speaks through the gospel promises that in Christ, one day, all sins and all disease and all sickness will be healed. So this book exists to us as the perfect record and the extension of a person, God, a perfect record of his words into our life. That is exactly what Paul is saying when he makes the argument to the churches of Galatia, the scripture, using that term synonymously in exchange for the name God, foreseeing what God would do with Abraham, makes those promises. And Peter has that same understanding as well. If you go back to Second Peter, he makes the statement regarding the Word of God, I was an eyewitness, I saw it with my own eyes, but better than my own eyewitness testimony, better than my own personal account of what I saw, we have something more sure, the prophetic word. And he makes the statement, we have something more certain, more reliable, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Peter's statement, the reason why he's not going to stand up and tell you knock-knock jokes or personal anecdotes about his time with Jesus is because we all are living in dark times. We live in a world that is bent on rebellion against the Father. We live with the repercussions of that sin. We ourselves at times have been active participants in it. And as a result, what Peter is saying is there's something you need more in your life than any personal missionary testimony, as wonderful as they are. There's something you need more in your life than any anecdotal sort of 
thing that I could share. What you need more is the Word because it functions as a flashlight. It functions as a lamp that will guide us until when? When will we no longer need this book anymore? When will this book become irrelevant? Well, the Word of God will never become irrelevant, but there is a promise in, in this passage. You pay attention to this until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. That's a reference to Isaiah 9 and Revelation 22. If you are a part of my church, I would probably take this paragraph and break it up into three different sermons. And I would take one Sunday in particular to look at the passages in Isaiah 9 and Revelation 22. Jesus Christ is clearly the individual alluded to in Isaiah 9 and emphatically declared in Revelation 22 as being the morning star that rises, the dawn which ends the darkness. What Peter is saying here in 2 Peter chapter 1 is that you should pay attention to the Word of God as a lamp to guide you until Jesus returns. And he does promise to return. Why? Verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul makes the statement that all of Scripture is God-breathed, that God breathed it out. One of the questions that you always get asked is, well, how did that, how did that work? How exactly did it happen? You have these men sitting down to write. Why, how, did, how did they know what to write? What, what happened? What was the process that unfolded? One of the biggest questions that we find ourselves debating almost every century, we go back to this argument over and over again, and it's in an argument that's as old as time. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3, where the snake said to Eve in the garden, did God really say this? We are always arguing, and we will always argue until the Lord returns about the nature of his word. And one of the questions that is always presented, how can we know that this is God's word to us when we do not know the exact process that God used to inspire human writers to record it? I must confess to you guys, brothers and sisters, I don't know exactly how it worked. And it's not from a lack of study or effort on my part. Many, many great scholars, many, many great theologians who have come before me have also struggled with the exact nature of how it worked. The Chicago Statement on the Inerrancy of Scripture, drafted in 1978, Article 7, makes this statement. Hundreds of theologians and biblical scholars, we affirm that inspiration is the work that God, by His Holy Spirit, through human writers, gives to us his word. The origin of Scripture, we confess, is divine. But the mode of divine inspiration, the method, how it happened, the mode of divine inspiration remains largely a mystery to us. Peter makes this statement. Scripture doesn't happen because someone wants it to. In verse 20, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. The Greek word there it, it can also be rendered unfolding or untying or unloosing. So when he says no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, another way of understanding the, the Greek word in that text is no, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own effort to untie it or unloose it. Nobody of their own will touches the Father and says, ah, I've discovered divine truth. Nobody of their own will comes into contact with God and says, here is what God is like. Nobody can do that. Nobody can choose to do that. It always happens at God's initiative, which is what he says in the next verse. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Nobody chose, nobody determined, nobody decided that they would speak from God. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by his Holy Spirit. We do not know exactly how it worked, but we know that it did 
work that we do have the Word of God before us today. A question is often put to me. I, just a number of months ago, I was sitting in a coffee shop in Kamloops witnessing with a fellow who is very curious. He's hungry to know the Lord, but he has doubts. He has questions. He says, how do you know that that book is true? It's never been proven false. It's never been demonstrated to contain any error. We have documents that predate the time of Christ, prophecies that point to the birth of Christ, and then we have the coming of Christ who was crucified for our sins, buried, and he rose on the third day according to the Scriptures. And if it's a lie, just show me the body. They've been looking for it for 2,000 years, and they'll never find it. Because Jesus, who is the Word, has ascended on high, and he is ruling now from the right hand of the Father. My response to this individual was, how do you know that you exist? He says, well, I just know that I do. Because you're here, right? Yeah. You're here because God created you. This whole world is here because God created it. No one was there on the first day of creation. No one was there until day six when man was created. Yet we all see it around us plain as day. It's here, all of what we refer to as natural revelation bears witness to his glory, and scriptural or divine revelation bears witness as well. If you take an open Bible and you put it in an honest man's heart, hands so that it can touch his heart through faith, you'll witness the greatest miracle of all. I love Lydia's testimony. We uh, were just doing, doing business as usual at the bridge. And on one particular Sunday in April, shortly after Easter, about four years ago now, a whole crew of people just suddenly showed up at our church and sat down. We're interested to hear what you have to say from the Bible this morning. I met with one of them, a fellow named Dustin. He says to me, now normally when you walk through a church door, you shake hands, you say, hello, welcome to the bridge. What brings you here this morning? Oh, you know, we're just in the neighborhood, just checking things out. I said, hello. This is fellow's name is Dustin Savage. I said, hello, I'm Joshua. I'm Dustin. Good to have you here this morning. What brings you here this morning? Well, I'm just curious to know, do you employ the historical grammatical literary method of interpretation regarding the scriptures? Why, yes, we do. We'll see. <laughs> and he sat down. These are people who have longed to experience God. And they've had all kinds of experiences. But they haven't had the opportunity to listen to him in his word. What hooked many of those individuals was a passionate, wonderful experience. But it was one that they came painfully to realize was devoid of the truth. Sometimes we hear, we listen to the preaching of the Word of God, we come to church every Sunday, we hear the preacher stand up and pick apart the text and look at the original languages and kind of get into it, and we go away, and it all seems rather dry and academic. I want to say to you lovingly that walking with the Lord is anything but dry or just academic. It's a roller coaster. There are ups, there are downs, there are moments of unparalleled joy and there are moments of pain and sadness as he refines you and prunes you and turns you into a better person. If there's anything I've learned, you can call it a lot of different things, the Christian life. But if you're walking with the Scriptures, 
It's not dry. I want you to look back with me at verse 15. And this is what I want to close with this morning. Peter makes a statement right before he talks about Scripture. I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. In other words, he's going to talk about Scripture. He's going to talk about the importance and the primacy of Scripture, the supremacy of the Word of God. But he's saying, you know, after I die, after I leave, I want to make every effort that you can recall these things. You can bring these things to mind. There's no, uh, no statement here that you need to be constantly searching for an experience, per se. There's no statement here that you need to be always chasing after that next sort of mountaintop experience. Rather, what Peter says is you need to have the ability to recall, to bring it before your mind's eye, to see it again, not to experience it again. Well, what's he referring to? Look back, the verse right before that. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, okay, so he knows he's going to die. Well, what's the verse right before that? I think it right as long as I am here in this body. So as long as I'm here and I'm not dead yet, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. I want to stir you up. Park Hills Baptist Church, we are so grateful for your partnership in what the Lord has been doing in Kamloops. I would normally take lots of time in a fellowship gathering afterwards and tell you all about some wonderful, exciting, and difficult, uplifting, challenging times that I've had, but I want you to be stirred up. Hold the book in your hand. Walk in obedience to it, not to a pastor or any other prophet. Or Just follow the scriptures. Allow them to stir your heart and walk in obedience to it. And you will experience some of the richest, most wonderful, most rewarding, most challenging times you've ever experienced. Walking with Christ. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word to us. We thank you, God, for the Son who is the word in flesh, who came to die on the cross to forgive us of our sins, to pay the penalty that we ourselves could never pay. Father, we thank you that you have taken the time to say things to us, to speak to us. And we pray, Lord, that we would hear you, that we would obey you, that we would walk with you. And we pray, Lord, as we step out in faith and obedience, we're not looking, Lord, for easy, carefree, stress-free life, Lord. Like the fellow said earlier, we, we know you get to use our redeemed lives however we choose, but we trust in your goodness. So we pray you'd stir us up again, Lord, to walk with you by the light of your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you all for having me this morning. Thank you very much. For